Okay. Verses 3, really 4 through 12, 13. 4 through 13 of Ephesians 1 are really important to deciding for yourself what God is doing in this world. And that's why we spent three parts on it. Uh, We covered verse 4 through 6, verse by verse last week. And in that study, I proposed that the elect and the predestined described there are certainly the nation of Israel. Um, And if you challenge that interpretation, that's fine. But you, you should go back and watch last week. Uh, August 11th, 2019 archives that it's hotm.faith and uh, it will help you understand why I make that uh, assessment. I think it'll be very helpful to you. So, oh, and also I got to make an announcement. We're having a uh, open water baptism September 1st, a Sunday here. That's a couple weeks out. We have the font out there for those who will come. You don't have to attend here if you want to participate in that. And then we typically have hot dogs and uh, people bring food. It'll happen after meat, after milk, milk. So uh, around uh, 11.30 to 12, we'll be doing that um, Sunday, September 1st. So those of you out there who sometimes stop in and visit for that, feel free. So bearing that interpretation in mind, uh, let's read verses four through six. God, according as he has chosen us, And that's the nation of Israel, the Jews, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I know you can hear me emphasizing us and we in those passages because we're going to see at the end of this that Paul will shift from that to a you. The us and we are talking about the house of Israel. Later on, the you will be referring to Gentiles who come into the house of Israel as one. So we talked about the phrase from the foundation of the world. We left off with that last week and it might, it might in contrast to popular opinion, be speaking of the time when God established the nation of Israel, calling them out of bondage, giving them laws from Sinai and the prophet Moses and all the things he gives them in Leviticus, that that's the world or economy that is being spoken of in these passages that talked about from the foundation of the world. Typically, Christians automatically say from the foundation of the world means before God created this world or anything in it. But there is a possibility, and could be wrong here, but there is a possibility that before the foundation of the world that the Jewish writers were speaking of their world. And you got to consider that. Now, last week, Earl came up and he said, what's the Greek word for world there? And it's a good question because it's not oikonomia. Which, which means an age or a period or an administration of time like the Jews under the law. It is cosmos, which does mean the universe and world. So in all probability, it means from the foundation of the world, uh, created world, before it was created. 
Um, and that's just something uh, to throw in there. So let's pick it up now at verse 7, which 7 through 12. And just listen to uh, this as I emphasize the us and we's again. And then also it refers to Jesus, in whom we, it's referring to Jesus, the we's, the nation of Israel, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. Another little inkling that it's talking about the Jews because they were the first ones to receive Christ, right? So go back to verse 7 where Paul is describing the efficacious work, the, the total work of Christ on behalf of those who were under the law of sin and death. That's what verses 7 uh, through 12 are talking about, what Christ did for the nation. Remember, he came into his own, not to the Samaritans, not to the Gentiles. So it says at 7, in whom we, Paul says, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. This is just a summary of what the nation received through their promised true Messiah and those who received him. It's a perfect match, really, what he says here to the nation because they were shedding blood of animals uh, well before this as temporary propitiation for sin. That was going on, going on, going on. And it was in anticipation of the true Messiah who would come and his blood would be put on their doorposts, so to speak. It would be covering their, their lives and their heart and finally do that for them. So when, when he says through his blood about us there, Paul is talking about what God had done through Christ for them as a people, emancipating them once and for all from sin, no more shedding of blood of animals and all that. The gift was in and through, given through the grace of God through the shed blood, which gave them permanent forgiveness of sin. No more do high priests have to go in every day to do that who are ordained of men. Once and for all, Christ entered into the Holy of Holies with his blood, and it covered that whole scene for them, right? The New Testament is replete with passages that reiterate elements of permanent propitiation now, not temporary like they had been under uh, by Christ through his blood, gaining forgiveness and grace. In fact, the line, the riches of his grace is unique to Paul. He's the only writer in the New Testament who uses that phrase, the riches of his grace in other places. And so this helps establish that Ephesians was written by his hand. It's these little internal evidences that scholars use to decipher who's written what. And the riches of his grace is one of the lines Paul uses in other places, but no other New Testament writer does. So speaking of this grace, Paul further elaborates on the value, or maybe I should say the quality of the grace, saying, 
Verse 8, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Meaning this grace was not limited or stunted in some way. It was liberally applied in all grace to the nation uh, to, to, to give them propitiation of sin in the great plan of salvation of the predestined nation of Israel. So we're talking about first things first here. We're not included in this yet, the, the Gentile nations. This is Paul giving us a preface of what God did and established through that nation of Israel, through the promised Messiah, through the shedding of blood. Paul says that it was given in both wisdom and prudence, suggesting, really, uh, scholars say, looking at those words in the Greek, unfathomable intelligence of God in setting this up this way and doing what he did. And at this Paul. At this point, Paul introduces the idea to the mystery that he has brought up. This mystery, and that's what led us in last week to trying to understand what these passages are talking about. And he speaks about a mystery several times in this book of Ephesians. And we talked about what the mystery is. So last week we read how Paul explains what the mystery is in other parts of the epistle. Chapter 2, he'll talk about it. Chapter 3, he'll talk about it. Chapter 5, he mentions the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. And uh, he plainly tells us that it refers to the fact that God has taken his 1,500-year-plus people and all that he's done with them, predestined them to do, setting up everything for them, and he has then joined the world to them. That is the mystery that Paul is blown away that he has access to understanding because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So when he talks about this mystery, he's talking about, it's unfathomable fathomable to me as a Jew who went around killing Christians, who was, according to the law, perfect, and I was doing everything right. It's unfathomable to me that God would do all of this and then suddenly link all of the world together in the benefits of it. That is a mystery. And remember, we, uh, he likens it to the mystery of a husband and wife coming together in Ephesians chapter 5, saying the mystery, it's a mystery to me. Nevertheless, it's symbolic of what he's talking about. So we noted that this verse 9 here is what helps us see the context and application of predestination spoken of here as he's clearly referring to the nation of Israel in verses 4 through 12. As we and us, God has predestined we and us. That is the full context of what we've got. And then we will clearly see how he differentiates between them who are predestined, the we and us, in verses uh, 4 through 12 in verse 13. In verse 13, he shows a complete difference of a different group who weren't predestined, the way the Calvinists would suggest. So verse 9 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself. That word mystery is mustrion, mustrion in Greek, and it literally means something into which one must be initiated before it becomes known to them. Uh, or something that has been concealed and hidden 
that will be revealed later. But Paul says that God made known unto us, the nation, the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. He did it because it was his good pleasure. He wanted to reveal this mystery and make it known to them then, and it's according to his good will and pleasure. I have a, good, I have a question kind of to ask you all rhetorically. Scripture, we know, describes a good God. And he de- it describes him as fair. It describes him as just, fair, just. And it directly says he is love. God is love. So we have a being, because God is a personage, a being, uh, a personality, if you want, whatever, however you want to define it. God is love. So we have a being that is love. That's one of the direct applications to God, right? And if we take all this at face value and we trust it, what would we believe is God's good pleasure that he purposes in himself? We're trying to know God, the only true uh, living God, and his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And we're trying to know him through the scripture and we're trying to ask, so he's using this line in his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself. What would this good God who is love, what would be his pleasure to purpose in himself? And we've had 10,000 different explanations of what that is. And, uh, and so he can't be, to me, maybe to you, but he can't be someone who inflicts pain uh, on his creations and doesn't mind seeing them suffer, especially for eternity, for eternity. I just don't understand him being that kind of God. And would this God have created us in such a way so that we would d- disappoint him so that he could punish us that's, that's something that is what people, there are people who believe this, that yes, he created us. He knew what our choices would be based on how he created us. He refused to save us. And then he's going to enjoy watching us suffer. I don't understand that kind of God from scripture. And then if he's good and can purpose things in himself, according to his good pleasure, remember those phrases to help describe him. We would certainly believe that he would purpose in himself things that are good and fair and loving, all things considered. So even though I think we put the reformed ideas to bed last week, and again, you should consider them if you haven't yet, uh, on how they interpret Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, essentially, Let's talk for just a minute about the way God is described or summarized by these majority groups, not just Calvinism, and the approaches out there that they present as relative to what his good pleasure is for all that he does. So our brothers and sisters who are Reformed or Calvinists say that God is sovereign and with his ability to do and be and purpose anything that he wishes to do and say and be, 
he, according to his goodwill and pleasure, he chooses and chose to create all the way that he wanted to create them, save some, a handful, not most, not all, but some, but just some he chooses to elect to his kingdom. And then the mindset of the Calvinist says that the same God who has created, known, and not elected the rest chooses not to save them because he's the one who saves. His own pleasure is to then watch them suffer eternally in flames of fire. That is the Calvinist view. That's his joy. And they say, by the suffering of the billions in hell forever, literal, God is glorified that he chose the few to be in his kingdom. That's the justification for it. This is important stuff in the realms of Christianity because the majority of Christians, uh, at least in America today, are reformed. That's how they see. And if it's life eternal to know the only true and living God, I think it's important to know if that's what he's like. I think that's just as important to know if he's like that as if he has a body of flesh and bones like the Mormons say. I think both of them are just as important to know. This is the pleasure of the goodwill of the Calvinists to actually create human beings knowing he would not save them because God is the one who saves in the Calvinist view. Not man and women choosing God, but God, uh, I'll say force, but God electing them to be chosen. So he creates, but he chooses not to elect. I don't know why the Calvinist God couldn't elect everybody. That's never on their mind. It's only that he elects some. On the other hand, and this is just for your information, we have the other view, which stands in opposition to Calvinism. It's called Arminianism. And Arminianism says God is good. He's light. He's love. He is all these good things. He wants everybody to be saved. He really does. But he is sort of not sovereign and he's impotent to a certain extent in his powers. And he, even though he created full well knowing this, remember that, the Arminianist God created everything full well knowing that there was nothing he could do about the free will and demonic possession that would infiltrate the human race. And so the Arminius God, while he is good and loving and everything else, he's being beaten by Satan and the human will of his creations who say, I don't want you. And knowing that when he created them, he gave them that right and he washed his hands of inability to do anything about it. So he's sort of like an absentee manager who really created things and couldn't manage, can't manage the outcome for it to the good of his creations, to the good of his creations. In this situation, God then is said to have been fully aware that human beings, what they would do because he's omniscient. He has all knowledge in the Arminius view. So he fully knew, and he knew who would pick him, 
He created everything anyway, and in the Arminius view, the rest go and burn in an eternal hell forever. So, where Calvin's God is powerful, but he's just mean. He really is. He's mean, in my estimation. Unwilling to save all, only a few. The Arminius God, while omniscient, is kind of inept, and he lacks power to really fix anything that he started. And human will and demons and devils triumph over him. Here in Ephesians 1, we see a God who, according to his good will and pleasure, has predestined a nation out of all other nations, not because they were more mighty, not because they were more holy. We don't know why he chose them. It could have been because they were more deplorable. I mean, they're the ones who put their own Messiah to death. Who knows why he chose them? But we can, we can assign all sorts of intentions to God for doing it, but we don't know. And because they're called his chosen people, it doesn't mean that they were, they were called by God or predestined because they were really great or really bad. We don't know. Maybe it was a combination of both. But he predestined them to bring forward everything necessary to be accomplished in order to establish the redemption and reconciliation of his creations at large. Now that is a God that I can relate to. And I'm not making it up because I want it. I see it in scripture. And I even see it here in Ephesians 1 that he predestined them to do the things they were going to do. According to his goodwill and pleasure, he purposed it within himself. I'm going to do this through you guys in order to reconcile ultimately this world to myself. I see a God in the rest of scripture who triumphed through his son on the cross over Satan. He beat him. So I don't see Satan as having an ability to steal away what God purposed in himself, according to his good pleasure. And Satan initially had power in the cosmos because of what happened in the garden. So the second Adam came along and he triumphed over that Satan there. And Jesus, even when Jesus was on earth, said, Satan's done. And I can give you three or four passages where he says, his power is gone. It's over. So, and then he paid for the sin of the human race, which alienated us from God. So there's the reconciliation of the whole world. And then I see that God having fixed the issues that inserted themselves between him and the free will of man, those things all imputed themselves upon the situation. God fixed them all. He took them all out of the way. And then this loving God gives his creations the right to do what they want to do. He's done, gotten everything out of the way that was impeding the relationship. Now, a good loving God purposed in his heart, I want my creations to decide if they want me or not. We have a proof of that in the Garden of Eden. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? He gave, created two people. He said, you give this garden, it's yours, do what you want with it. I'm going to put one thing in there, though. Don't eat of that tree. But you have the right to do it if you want. It's the same picture. And Paul calls Jesus the second Adam who restored everything spiritually, not physically, spiritually, Jesus 2,000 years ago, to the Edenic state 
where we're back in the place where there's no alienation now between God and man, and God has us all in this spiritual garden. We're in a physical uh, fallen place, but we have a, a garden where God says, choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I'm a good God. I'm not going to force you. But if you want it, I've cleared the path of everything that got in the way between us. And that is uh, a God that I can respect and trust. So this purposing in himself is from the type of God that I've come to see and know and love in Scripture. And it is this bringing together into one body the mystery that was not known before that Paul is speaking of here. In fact, Paul pretty clearly explains this mystery and its meaning to us in the next verse, which is a wonderful summary in my estimation. Look, he says that, he talked about the mystery in verse 10, Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, you guys ever heard that phrase? Talk about it in a second. He might gather together in one, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Heaven and earth in Christ, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God would gather all things. It's so radical, you know. This is what God was purposing in his heart, in his own pleasure, that in the dispensation of fullness time, he would gather together in one all things in Christ, both of which in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. The web translation says, to an administration in the oikomenia of the fullness of times, in the age, the administration of the fullness of times, to sum all things up in Christ, the things in heaven, the things on earth in Christ. So you know that word oikomenia means an economy. And for instance, uh, Obama had an oikomenia, uh, an administration by which he governed our nation as a president. And uh, President Trump, he, uh, President Obama did that. And President Trump, he had an oikomenia, which he has an administration where he's overseeing everything in our nation uh, according to his ways. Well, similarly, um, uh, this is what it's talking about, that in the oikomenia, the dispensation, the administration of the fullness of times. To me, this is describing what God has intended all along. Okay, I'm going to go for 1,500 years with these people. We're going to work this out. We're going to get them to do this. It's all going to happen. I've predestined them in many ways to be mine. And then in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God is going to do what? We just read it in, in verse 10. You just read what God did. He's not going to do it. We're not in the dispensation of the fullness of times. God did this in the dispensation of the fullness of times, which was 2,000 years ago. Okay? So in that dispensation of the fullness of times, when the law and the prophets, they came and they met face to face with the promised Messiah, that was the dispensation of the fullness of times. Right? Uh, God would gather all things in Christ. And Paul doesn't limit those who are gathered to those who are just alive on earth. He includes those who are in heaven and all and the things, the things on earth. And the word things is used purposely. He doesn't use souls. He doesn't use people and he doesn't use believers. 
Paul uses, and the things on earth, in Christ. What that is, and, and we'll, you learn this in your discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, Christ Jesus, he became all of everything, everything of everything, everything possible in him, in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So that dispensation, that was when God, through the predestination, through his son, through the gospel, going out to all men, established his new heaven, his new earth, as we discovered when we studied Revelation, with a new Jerusalem, which Luke says is on high and spiritual. A new, the old Jerusalem is, I'm pointing that way because I feel like it's that way from where I'm sitting. The old Jerusalem is still there. It's got its dusty roads. It's got all of its material stuff. It's still going on. There's 10,000 religions all saying they've got this. They have sites you can walk around and say, this is where this happened, established by Constantine's mother. And she's probably wrong on most of them. You can go over to the material place and you can walk around and you can get all that entertainment like an amusement park. But the new Jerusalem is established on high. It's spiritual. And it reigns in the hearts of individuals, you see. So... And he did that. God said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to establish all that after I wipe out or shake everything that is material that is left in this dispensation of the fullness of times, which he did in 70 AD. So it was the founding of his eternal, unshakable kingdom that would rule and is ruling and reigning over the hearts of individuals now in any place. Remember, Christ is reigning over all. All things, both in heaven and in earth. He was given by his father everything and reigns over all, right? So we just want to know who are the people who have God's laws of love written on their hearts. Those are the people that we want to relate to because they're our brothers and sisters, right? They have Christ in them by virtue of his spirit and they love as a result, showing us they're his. And so it's not those who feign religious affiliation or establish religious uh, empires. That's all brick and mortar stuff. But it's those who operate in love by Christ on them. And it was established of the new economy with a new administrator now, a new administrator over this economy, not the law, but Christ, who is love. And... Uh, because he overcame everything to have this kingdom. Then in the fullness of time of, of which Paul writes, the complete consummation of all that had happened came together then. The mystery was unfolded to them then, Paul included, that God was going to gather together now, having done all this stuff with the nation, into one everybody. And Paul's like, that is just mind-blowing mystery. And the word means, in, when it comes to gather together, it means to simmer down, uh, like sweating food, onions, or simmering down to a roux. You're taking all these elements and you're bringing them down into one united flavor from all of their uh, uh, contributions to the, the mix. And that's what the word means in the Greek. That means God is reducing everything down to a common denominator, which is love, which is love. And uh, the denomination of the heart where the spirit reigns, all things which are in heaven and which are in earth, 
I believe that those who have Christ in them here, when they die, they don't, they don't have a remarkable transition. I think that what's in them here is what exists there. It's the same substance. And when they die, there's not any shocking, oh my gosh, I think it's just a transition right into the kingdom that they belong to here. And I don't think it's shocking for them at all. And there's no mourning over a believer passing in my estimation who, is, uh, who loves. They are entering into a f more full expression of it, which might be radically uh, different for them. But nevertheless, because we know from scripture that it's in us, this kingdom, this spirit that runs it. So God in that dispensation age oversaw the two coming together, which is a great mystery, and it's sim simmering them down to a common denominator. But what have men and humankind done with this? Ever since, breaking it up, they've, with man-made justification, they have divided. We've divided. So my petition to you in this here at this point is to petition you to not let divisions, no division come in your mind in your interaction with the human race. You might meet a, a Muslim, you might meet a Catholic or a Mormon, you might meet any of them. And you take them for whatever they are and what they say and you let them have their freedom and their free will to decide how they're gonna pursue God. But you love with them. You love with all people all the time. Their proclivities toward Calvinism, sovereignty, God, or Mormonism's uh, anthropomorphic God, or Hindus, 10,000 gods of 50 different colors, those are all their little peculiarities. But love them, love them in every way imaginable as Christ loved us. And you will engage in the um, denomination of heaven. And that is how we know who are his disciples. It's by that love. So when we see that the one is spiritual, governed by the spirit whose fruit is love, it's really pretty clear what the call is for anybody who is Christ. That's the call. Paul makes this open unity and oneness clear when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.21, therefore let no man glory in men, don't glory in men. For all things are yours, he says to the saints there, whether of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. They're all yours because, and you are Christ and Christ is God's is what he says. He says that because Christ has everything given to him. He's over all things in heaven and earth. And if you are in Christ, then everything is yours. So don't go different, differentiating between Paul and Apollos and Cephas and the world and life and death and all this stuff. Don't go saying, well, I follow what Sean says, but I don't follow what Terry says. And I don't, yeah, we all have our issues, but I just love everybody. That is the Christian ethos. So he laid out the governance of the economia. He laid out this administration in scripture. He says that, that, that God is over Christ and Christ is over man. It's very clear. He explained how human beings fit and function in the kingdom as he wrote in Galatians 4.4, 4, which we read. But when the fullness of time was come, that's the dispensation of the fullness of times, guys. 
When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. So we see what God was doing in that dispensation of the fullness of times, beginning with when he sent his son. He emphasized the value on the cross in breaking down barriers between people groups. It's in Ephesians 2. We'll read about it in a few weeks. He says, having abolished in his flesh, Christ, the hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, abolished. You see what men have done? The Catholics have their ordinances. The Mormons have their ordinances. Everyone has their ordinances, their rites, their rituals, what their men, Apollos and Paul and Peter have established. I'm using that as an example. Yeah, and he says, uh, but in Ephesians, he says he, he abolished the ordinances. He abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances for, in, for to make in himself of two one new man, making peace. I know people are really frightened by this, but this is what scripture teaches. It sounds like kumbaya, let's come together. It's a Coke commercial from 1960s. We're all out in the field. We're of every race and color and denomination and we're singing together. And I know that, that that's the thing that Christians fear. But this is what is described by God here in the after the dispensation of the fullness of times completed everything. That he might, Christ, reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the hatred thereby. Laws produce rites and rituals. Ordinances produce hatred. We mock those who do ordinances that we don't think you need to do. We hate them for them. And they hate us for not doing them. But God has established a better plan, which gets rid of all that stuff. You just have to see it. And he came to preach to you, which were far off, and to them that were close. He even describes what unifies the family in heaven in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this cause, Paul says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Did you know you're part of a family that's in heaven and earth? That the family, that that earth family, that I mean, the heaven family that's up there, you are part of that eternal family. That that, and he says, I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with the might of His Spirit in the inner person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, not doctrine, not division, rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints, this is his hope, what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, you hear that one? Love passes knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. He described the complete reign that Jesus has over his kingdom in Philippians 2, 9 through 10, saying, Wherefore God has highly exalted Christ and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. That's a God taking care of everything that the Calvinists and the Arminius pass by. And he describes the scope of this reconciliation in Colossians 1.20. He says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's when it was all brought together in him by the blood of his cross. And then finally, Peter describes the timing of these good things that God has purposed in himself. And he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. This is why he's done it, that your faith and hope might be in God. When Paul says that God gathered all things in the Greek, it's ta panta, written in what is called the neuter gender. Now, it's amazing that Paul would write ta panta of all things in the neuter gender. Why? It's not just all persons. That's why it's neuter gender. And it's not just all angels, and it's not just all men, it's not just all animals. It's everything. That's why he wrote it in the neuter gender, top anta, of all things. All things. I think Paul uses this phrase purposely right here in the first chapter of Ephesians. And let's read through the, the uh, verses 17 through 23 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. There's a hope in God's calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? There is a riches, richness of glory that saints inherit. That's what Paul is saying he wants you to understand. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, speaking of Christ in his kingdom, far above all uh, principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body to the fullness of him that fills all in all. This is a complete picture. This is not some separate compartmentalized thing of denominationalism. This is Christ over all and all given by his father because of what he accomplished. Later, we'll read in Ephesians 4.10, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And finally, we consider Colossians 3.11, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, 
barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. I'm of the opinion, and some of you may dispute this heartily, and you're, you're welcome to, but that Christ is in and over everything. That along the way, many of us get him and his kingdom wrong, but he is there. I'm of the opinion that Christ has the hearts of all people, of all walks, all religions, in all denominations and expressions. Not that any denomination is all Christ. They're not. We all have problems with it. We know those who are his, though, by their love, their agape love, and other manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. I think we need to really, really loosen up the criticism of individuals, individuals who happen to embrace certain denominational expressions. We don't like them, and they put them in bondage, and they hurt people, and they're evil empires, truly. But we have to back off as Christians against individuals who are still trapped by some things or still are unsure. Christ is all in all. We're his. We're part of his heavenly kingdom. We move forward as ambassadors of love to these people to allow them to see who Christ is. If we put up the, this before individuals, we're never going to reach them. So again, it doesn't mean the denominations aren't messed up and don't need criticism. But when our work with individuals comes into play, it's love, man. It really is. So the scripture says Christ is on all. God writes his laws upon the hearts of those who are his and his are everywhere. At verse 11, Paul now continues and he says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. And we covered this passage last week and explained what it means contextually that relative to the nation of Israel, God predestined them, elected them, called them, appointed them according to the purpose of their works, all things after the counsel of his will, which as I have explained, I believe is a good, effective, victorious will for the benefit of all humankind. And here we come to another passage relative to all things. But this time, instead of speaking of Christ being over all and all in all, it speaks of God who works all things. I suggest that this speaks of God who accomplishes the designs of his objectives to engage and enact all things necessary to bring us back to the Garden of Eden state of free will. You have a choice. Love me or eat of the tree. Follow your own will or follow me. That's all we're at now. And it's all been done by and through this predestination. Paul adds the last comments to the nation of Israel here at verse 12 saying that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. And that last line is the thing that nails it in respect to God predestining the nation that first trusted Christ. The Gentiles didn't trust him for years later, but the Jews and those of them were the first who trusted Christ in bringing forth his cho chosen people in, in uh, the law and providing prophets that created the Old Testament, 
of people who would construct the tabernacle, of people who would construct the physical temple, and who would bring forth a priesthood and genealogies of a people who would bring forth a Messiah uh, in the fullness of times. And God would use all of that stuff to bring about uh, the, to re eliminate the effects of the first man, Adam, that was brought upon this earth. And in doing so, the house of Israel were, those were true Israel who loved God and who sincerely sought to try to please him. You know, I sometimes, I used to think that, boy, I hold those, those Jews up uh, who were devout to God and who followed his law, but really loved him and tried to do well. The ones we read about in the Old Testament, boy, they were, much, they were far superior to us today. I don't think that anymore. I think that those who are God's are devoted to God. And if you're devoted in this day and age to God by the spirit in your heart toward love toward others, you are as viable as the Jew wearing the ringlets and the clothes and the food and all that. They had their directions on how to show God their allegiance. We have ours. And there is no difference between that brother or sister in the family of God up there or here than there's us. I used to see a distinction, but not anymore. And here Paul is telling them that God had brought now the Gentile nations into this group. And um, at this point, as we pointed out last week, Paul makes the shift and it's a big shift, okay? He's been talking about we, us, eight times. He uses we or us from verses four to verses 12. We and us, we and us, and he uses predestination twice. We were predestined, we were predestined, we and us, we and us, talking about the nation of Israel. Here at verse 13, Paul shifts in his description to non-Jews, to Gentiles or heathen nations who would be privy to the good news because God had established in and through the nation of Israel everything necessary. And he will use ye and you it, uh, five times in one single verse. And he'll use trusted and believed twice instead of predestined. All in this verse 13. So we see a shift from him talking about predestined Israel now to verse 13. So he says, in whom you, at verse 13. Now we have a you also trusted, meaning Christ. Meaning after the gospel was given to the Jews, the converts to the Gentile nation had it extended to them. And so Paul can say, in whom you also trusted. You trusted too. We were the first to trust. Now you have trusted. And he says, after that, you heard the word of truth, not being predestined, but you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed. So again, we trusted and we believed. We were not predestined to do it. They were. We, you, ye, who Paul is talking about, the, the, the Gentiles of this world, trusted and believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in that verse 13, he in, in letters unites into one, everybody of the Jews from verse uh, four through 12 with this group in 13, and he brings them all together into one. The first group predestined, the second group hearing, trusting and believing and after doing that, after he says, 
receiving the Holy Spirit of promise. And that's the way the economy works for Gentiles. It's not this universal predestination stuff. It is when people hear the truth, they trust in it and they believe God will seal them his with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's what those passages say in context. So the gospel is preached. They heard it. They believed, received. And because of this, they, the Gentiles now, are sealed. Paul affirms the words of John found in the first chapter of his gospel. I love these passages. They're some of the most potent passages to me. We used to put them at the end of every heart of the matter when we were on television. These passages ended every single heart of the matter. They're so important. Where we read the following that start off speaking of Jesus in verse 10. It says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, the whole nation, and his own received him not. Only those who were predestined to receive him, who had God on their hearts, they received him. But, at verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, not as many as who were predestined to believe on him, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John there says it's our belief, it's our looking and trusting that by which we are given the power to become the sons and daughters of God. The nation of Israel were predestined to be his sons and daughter. He called them out of all nations and said, you're going to be mine. It had nothing to do with belief. It had to do with uh, genetics and it had to do with conforming to the rites and rituals. But here in John, it's to those who believe. And Paul affirms that in verse 13 of Ephesians 1. And, and then he adds, which were born not of blood to distinguish between the Gentiles and the Jews, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. By what? By belief. By faith. That's how people in the Gentile, heathen, fallen world come to Christ and become part of that family by faith, by belief. And this last statement speaks of the sealing that is given to all the Holy Spirit who believe on him. Paul speaks of the sealing of the Holy Spirit in other places too. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, he says, Who has also sealed us, speaking of Christ, and given the earnest, the down payment, the deposit of the Spirit in our hearts. You have a, a down payment in your heart of the spirit. And that down payment as you're walking through this world says, you're part of that family. You're part of my family. You're mine. How do you know you're mine? You're loving people when you otherwise, you're choosing to love people. I'm gonna put it that way. You're choosing to love people because you're mine. And the earnest of the down spirit in our hearts tells us. And I guess when, you, when we go there, we don't have just the earnest of the spirit. We have the fullness of the spirit because everything there is spiritual. So, in chapter 6 of, uh, of, of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions the earnest of the Spirit again. He says, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment of the Spirit in your heart. Later in Ephesians, Paul will write, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit that's in us, that, that earnest payment. You can do that by being unloving and whatever. 
whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. So, you know, there's a beautiful, I almost said fur coat. That's not politically correct. There's a beautiful t-shirt at the store and you don't have enough money to buy it. So you go in and you put some earnest money on it. You say, here's $5 toward that $40 shirt. Please keep it for me. You have sealed that shirt to be yours. No one else can come along the rack and take it. You've put $5 on it and they store it away for you. That's what he's saying when he says that you have been given, you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. You've been given the earnest in your heart. God has bought part of you with uh, his sh- blood of his son and you have been sealed to the day of your redemption. When's the day of your redemption? <laughs> when you take that last breath, brother and sister. That's the day of your redemption where God says, all right, I want the full thing now. I get the whole t-shirt now I get to have in my family. That's what the earnest is. Here we have the seal by the, of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There we get the fullness of it. So I guess there would be a, 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 a magnific- magnificent change in the face of what I just said. And so in several places, believers are reminded that when they believe and receive what God has done to save and reconcile the world to himself by and through his son, he seals them with the Holy Spirit of promise, which lets them know they are his. And it seems that the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of promise for a few reasons, and we'll wrap it up with this. First, the Holy Spirit was promised to come to the believers in Jesus' day, to his apostles. He said, hang out in Jerusalem and in time, the Holy Spirit will come. He was promised to them. We see those promises recorded in John 16, 15, and 14. Jesus is promising his disciples the Holy Spirit will be sent. Uh, We then, of course, discover the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and promises those people upon sitting on them that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the promise that it fulfills. The Spirit fell while Peter preaches Jesus and the Spirit fell like tongues of fire and everybody starts speaking in tongues and we have this event where everybody says, wow, Jesus was the Messiah and they convert to Christianity on that day, 3,000 souls. The Spirit is also called the Comforter. And a Comforter, you know, when if a child is, a fr- is, is frightened and you come and you comfort them, what you're doing is you are reassuring them that everything's going to be all right. That's a form of, of assuring promises, the Holy Spirit of promise. Why could we take a kid? I promise your mom's going to be home soon. She only went to the store. It's going to be okay. Well, that's why the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. It's telling us in our lives, it's going to be okay. You can trust God at his word. So another reason the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of promise. And then finally, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a promise to all that we are his. Our flesh may say, man, I am not his. Our, our mouth may get in our way. Our hands might do things, you know, that says, I'm not his. But the spirit is saying, you're his, reminding us, you're his. Gently, you're his. And at, when you're reminded of that, you act like his. And so the Holy Spirit of promise is just reminding us of that thing. So those are the way we see the Holy Spirit of promise. There's one more way I want to wrap it up with. Paul, when he passed through the upper provinces of Asia Minor, came to Ephesus and he found a group of people who were disciples of John the Baptist. And they asked, and, and Paul asked him, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? 
See, John's was to repentance and everything. It didn't have to do with the Holy Spirit or miracles. It had to do with repentance. And they replied and they said, we didn't know there was any such thing as this Holy Spirit. And so they had been baptized with John's baptism under repentance. Paul comes along and says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And so they didn't. And so they rebaptized them in Jesus' name with water. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit, we read, came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, that line there in the book of Acts is thought by most um, charismatic Christians, those who believe in signs and speaking in tongues and healings and wonders. They believe that because they read about it in the Bible. They believe that if you actually receive the Holy Spirit of promise, sealing you to be God's, you must speak with tongues and prophesy. And so they, they put a huge focus on people coming forward and expressing these things at their water baptism in Jesus' name only, because that's how they were baptized here in Paul's day. So we have a whole denomination that if you run into one, they'll say, you'll say, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, good. And then they start to uh, summarize you through their mind. Have you been baptized? Yeah, I was baptized. Was it in Jesus' name only? No. Oh. Or if you say, yeah, it was, they say, did you speak in tongues and prophesy? No. Then you don't have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You're not a Christian. And it's a big group. There's a lot of them. Again, dividing us up from each other instead of just letting the Holy Spirit of love move through and let the doctrines take care of themselves. So I just have to mention that last one because that's out there in our world and there are people who believe that. You might be one of them. If you do, that's fine. But that's why you interpret that practice today as having application because it was done by Paul in his day in a completely different circumstance looking toward a completely different end. So... Um, Let's end there, and uh, that ends the existing passages on predestination in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to continue on with now Paul's conversation with believers in the book of Ephesians and what he continues to cover therefrom. Lord, we're grateful for your word and uh, for your son, for your spirit, for life, for your being a God who takes care of things and allows us our freedom to seek and search and know you. We pray that your spirit will be with us in abundance as we exit this building. Forgive me for the things that I say and suggest or teach that are off the mark and uh, forgive, uh, help people to forget them. And let's continue searching forward together so that we can know you, the only true and living God and Jesus Christ, your son, whom he sent, because that's life eternal. Help us to have this love for others who don't think like we do, especially in this state, Lord. This is a mission field, as they call it. This is a, a state of some warfare. And, and, and while we do want to exercise truth and love and speak the truth, we want to remember that, uh, that you're over all these things and you use us, use us effectively in the lives of others. So we pray for those who are on my list uh, here, Dave and Nancy Bar uh, uh, Bontempo and Nancy's Cancer. We pray for Jax and the divorce of his parents, Militia and Brian. We pray that Jax will be able to uh, be able to manage this change in his young life and bless his parents that they'll be able to uh, have peace in between them. 
And we pray for anybody who's struggling for whatever it is that isn't on the list and you will love them and bless them and make yourself known that they'll see you. You take us out to a place and you think we think we've arrived and then you take us out further and we look back and we can't believe what you're doing and we just rejoice in the fact that you love us enough to help us grow. So we pray we'll grow in spirit, grow in truth and be safe this week as you work in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.